How are you guys? You know, that's such a great song to me. Better is one day in your house, one day in your courts, than thousands elsewhere. It's kind of what we're trying to, to grasp as a people, you know, to, to hopefully make you and me grow deeper in our faith. We want it, we're not so interested about this width, width of it as we are the depth of it. And so, uh, full agenda, that's what I'd love to do in your hearts, in my heart, is to get us to be um, excited, um, passionate about our faith in Christ. We're going to have communion today, which is always uh, I enjoy so much. And uh, what we're going to do is we're going to build it around last week's message to this week's message. If you recall, I don't think I said anything, but last week, I, uh, on Saturday night, I didn't finish the whole message. I, I uh, knew during the week that I bit off more than I could chew. I knew I was trying to push too much into this time limit that I have, that I, that, but I thought, oh, okay, I can do it. I'll just, I couldn't do it. I just didn't do a very good job of it. So, therefore, I had some stuff left over. And uh, I wanted to talk about what we talked about last week and emphasize the importance of what our Lord said. Now, if you don't remember, let me, let me refresh your memory. He talked about the very essence that there's only one way to God. I know a lot, a lot of people, a lot of different religions. I understand it. A lot of good people. And, 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 and I always hear, you know, what about the good, you name it. You, you can put whatever denomination or, or um, whatever race of people you want to put on it, you can put on that. What about them? You mean to say that you, you think that you're so special that only you can, can go to heaven and they can't? I heard that so many times it just kind of gets to you after a while. The fact of the matter is I don't make the rules. And neither do you or do they. But God has made the rules. And as we studied last week, He set them in a very definite, definite purpose of how everyone can know Him. There aren't myriads of ways to God. If so, God would have said so. But He didn't. He said there is but one way. And so we saw last week, kind of, through the life of Cain and Abel, the children of Adam and Eve. And if you remember, in the fourth chapter of Genesis, Cain came, came to the Lord with the fruit of the ground. He, he had grown, he was a tiller of the ground, and he wanted, I guess, to bring to the Lord the very best that he had to offer. The sweat of his hands, the sweat of his brow, he brought to the Lord the fruit of the ground. And the Lord God said to him, Nah, don't want it. He had no regard, the Bible says, for Cain and his offering. But for Abel, in his offering, Abel brought the, the first of the lamb, the, the, the firstling of the flock. And the Lord God said, I have regard for what you brought me, Abel. And what we learned, as we're going to see today on the screen, in, out of Leviticus, the Lord God explained that the life is in the blood. And from the Old Testament, blood's, blood of an animal, to the New Testament, the blood of Jesus Christ, it's always been the same, the way people can come to God. And it always had to be through the blood. It, it never varied, never varied in Scripture. And so we see... As a matter of fact, 
Well, let's put the first verse up. Uh, this was discovered, I believe, by Daniel. Daniel, who is one of our tech guys. Put Acts. Isn't the first one Acts? Check this out. Isn't that kind of cool? And we're not going to always do it this way because we want you to be reliant upon your Bibles. But, but because we're going to go through these verses fairly quickly and because they have a purpose, all of them after this verse is going to speak of the blood of Jesus Christ. And then we will have communion. And then we'll get on to finish the series on marriage. We'll finish it today. Just for your information, so if you read ahead, and I hope that you do, next week we're going to be back in First Peter, third chapter, and we're going to take off where we left off. We're going to take off from verse 7 to verse 8. First Peter, chapter 3, verse 8 to verse 12 next week. And so the Lord God says through the apostles, through the writer of this book, there is salvation, he says, in what? That's pretty, pretty definite. If, if someone who is in authority over you says there is salvation in no one else, goes on to say, we have a little screen up there, and the reason I walked up here is because I can't see it from back there. <laughs> it's like, a, it's like, the, like my eye test when I went to go get my driver's license. What? <laughs> see there is sal- yeah, see, there's a screen up there, a little one. Note the time is bigger than the screen. They want me to, they don't know about me knowing the screen, but they sure want to know when I'm supposed to finish. <laughs> I'm teasing. There is salvation in no one else. God did not stutter when he said those words. He says, there is no other name under heaven that has been given amongst men by which we, what, must be saved. Didn't stutter. If you go into the book of Revelation and you read the last chapter, it tells us that we have no right, none, in fact, there is a curse if we do, to take away from the Word of God or add to it. So that's pretty firm. That doesn't allow us to find many ways to God. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name that has been given amongst heaven by which you and I must be saved. Very definite the Lord is. And He does that for a purpose. He does that so that you know the ground rules. You know what the rules are. There are not a lot of rules. There's just a set of rules. It's not three and a half strikes and you're out in baseball. It's three. It's not three or five balls that allow you to get first place free. It's four. That's a rule. And it doesn't change. And it is set so there could be organization to the game. So there can be some way of playing it and understanding that we're all playing the same game. There is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven by which you and I must be saved. Now, I want to take a look what is written about how this salvation has come about by God. Next verse, Daniel, Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13 says this. Paul comforts us by saying, But now in Christ Jesus... You who were formerly far off, in other words, you who worship other gods or had no knowledge of God, you were far off, you have been now brought 
near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians 9.14, jump to that please, Daniel. How much more, the writer of Hebrews says, will the blood of Christ, blood, you can see the theme is, is strict. Who through the eternal spirit offered himself, the blood of Christ offered himself without blemish to God, cleansing yours and my conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Something really, there's something really pure about you and me serving the Lord, especially within the, the confines of the church, to, to uh, do the things that God has gifted us to do so that the church might flourish. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Daniel, it gives us the assurance of our faith that started long ago. Look, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, meaning God the Father set all of this in motion long beforehand by and through His foreknowledge. And how did He do it? By the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey and be sprinkled with His Jesus Christ's blood. May grace, that's God's unmerited favor. And may peace, that's peace with God. Not, not like Christmas greetings that you get, peace on earth. That's not going to happen. Forget it. If you bought those kind of cards and you still have some that you want to send out, okay, use them. But, but that's not going to happen. There's never going to be peace on this earth. There's going to be wars, and there's going to be rumors of wars, and we are in a day in which that is all escalated. It's getting more and more. But we may have peace with our God in the fullest measure, it says up there. In other words, He gives us all of His peace. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19. Daniel, throw it up on the screen. Our sins because of the blood, have been paid in full. Look, knowing you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life, in other words, from our sin life that was inherited from your forefathers, namely Adam, who when he and Eve ate of that fruit, sin fell upon them, curse fell upon them, and it fell upon all of us as well. No, verse 19, we were redeemed with the precious blood as of the lamb. Just as blood was given to the animal, or through the animal in the Old Testament, the blood of Christ is now ours in the New Testament. And so it says it's unblemished. It is spotless. The blood of Christ. Revelation 1, verse 5, more forgiveness of our sin. From Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and to the ruler of the kings of this earth, to Him, Jesus, who loves us and releases us from our sins. How? By His blood. Folks, it's blood. It's always been blood. It's never going to change. 1 John 1, 7, Daniel. Forgiveness more. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Never forget what we read last week in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11. 
God set the standard of why it had to be blood and no other way. That's why Cain, when he came to him with the fruit of the ground, it was not acceptable by God because it wasn't the way God asked Cain to come. And so God reads in Leviticus 17.11, He says, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar. In other words, a sacrifice was made. Note, to make an atonement. In other words, a payment for your souls. For it is the blood by reason of the life that makes atonement. In other words, a payment for sin. And that's what the Lord God did. In Leviticus 17.11, He explains what He did in Genesis chapter 3. When Adam and Eve sinned, it says that they were clothed with fig leaves. And God reclothed them in the skin of an animal. And the reason it was the skin of an animal is that the Lord God sacrificed an animal, took the skin from that animal, made them clothing, and He used the blood of that animal to pay for their sin so that they would be redeemed. Verse Leviticus, you, if, if you mark your Bible at all, and you, Leviticus is probably not a book you read a lot, but I'd mark that verse. The life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you on the altar to make an atonement for your souls. It is the blood by reason of the life that makes an atonement, a payment for our sins. And lastly, I want to take a look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. You see, it has been the blood from the beginning. It's going to be blood till Jesus Christ returns. And in the book of Hebrews, the ninth chapter, the 21st, 22nd verse says this. I'm really getting excited. I love this place. According to the law, it says one might almost say all things are cleansed by blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is what? You know, you really need to know Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 along with Leviticus 17:11. Without the shedding of blood, without Christ going to the cross, there's no forgiveness. As he said before, in Acts chapter 4, verse 12, there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven that has been given amongst mankind by which we must be saved. And so, guys, would you come forward with the elements and, and let's pass out uh, our, having communion. Um, what I'd like to do is to put an emphasis upon the wine, the, the juice that we're going to have, the blood but along with that, the Lord God had bread there with the meal. And with the disciples, he, he gave them the bread, if you recall, and he said, this is my body. It, it is going to be given for you. Let me pass it out right now. Thanks so much. Love you, Meredith. I love you a lot, man. Thanks for Wednesday morning. for always being there so faithful. He says that this is my body, he tells him. Now, now, we're not going to take communion yet. I want you to stop and think for a while. I'll tell you in a minute. And, and he said, this is, when you, when you eat of it, do of it in, in remembrance of me. Then later, he, 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 he showed them the wine that they were having. And he said, this is my blood. Again, he says, I want you to drink of it. And it is for the forgiveness of your sin. And when you drink of it, I want you to do so in remembrance of me. You see, it's, all of that we do in communion is to remember Jesus Christ and what He has done for us. 
the giving of His body, the shedding of His blood, so that you and I might be forgiven of our sins. There is no other way. I know religions would like to say so, and I've gotten into enough arguments anyways to people that... Uh, I, I, boy, I'll never forget. i got time while we pass this out. I, I was uh, pre-warned by a friend of mine that, that a certain friend's wife was really contentious and she loved 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 to argue and i said well i'm i won't i'm not into uh, we went up to just honor our friend he was being honored into a, a local hall of fame situation and we went to college together we wanted to honor him be with our presence there so sure enough we all sat down at a place and uh, um and his, and his wife was there and she says i understand you're a christian i said yeah yeah, I love the Lord with all my heart. He says, I understand that you guys say that uh, that only Christians can go to heaven. What about Jews? She says, my son is a Jew. Are you telling me my son's going to hell? Nice day. Nice to meet you as well. How's everything going in your life? I hope everything's well. I said, no, 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 I wouldn't say that. I have no right to tell you where your, where your son's going. But you know what? I can get a little feisty, especially about my faith. I can take a lot of stuff, but when it comes to my faith and what the Lord says, and I looked her in the eyes, I said, but the Bible says any of us, Baptist, Methodist, Jew, Gentile, we're all going to hell unless we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, to which she got very angry with me. She got very angry. She said, I don't want to talk to you anymore. I said, great, great. How's the weather been up? Why not change the subject? I mean, she doesn't want to talk about that. I'll talk about the weather. In the process, if she would have listened, not that it's me, if she would have just listened because I was willing to show her in a Bible where those words are true. But she dropped that bomb on me. And my buddy who told me about it gave me a look and went, like, you know, told you, <laughs> told you. Now, what I'd like for you to do, we all have the bread and the, and the juice. Every once in a while I call it wine. It's not. It's juice. But we have it. And what I'd like for you to do is the Bible warns us to not go haphazardly to communion. The Bible asks us to be very careful to go to hum- communion with any known sin to confess it. 1 John 1, 9 is awesome. It's, if, you, if you confess your sins, he's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive you your sins. Cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so if, if, if you've if stirred up in your soul something that the Lord God has reminded you of, then just ask Him to forgive you and put it behind you. If you can't think of anything, don't try to dredge something up. Holy Spirit's good enough at doing that. Just relax. Thank the Lord for who He is. And in a moment, after you guys kind of prepare your hearts, we'll take communion. So I'll... Uh, I'm going to go over here and sit around for about a couple minutes and pray my own self. And then I'll interrupt you in about two minutes and we'll, we'll have communion.
have communion. Um, during the supper, the Lord uh, looked at his disciples and he said to them, this is my body. Um, what he was going to do in a while, he was going to go to the cross and die. And he said, whenever you eat of it, do so in remembrance of me. Remember who I am. Remember. And for us today, so far away, so far removed from those 2,000 years ago, the wonderful thing that the Lord God has given you and me is a memory. Granted, as I get older, it's getting dimmer. But we still have the memory to remember what our Lord has done for us and who He is. Eat of this bread and remember Him. Shortly thereafter, he had the wine on the table and he grabbed his cup, I guess, of wine. And he said to them, this is my blood. It's going to be shed for the forgiveness of sin. This is what we just read about over and over again in Scripture. How the how blood, how the blood of Christ has, has set you and me free. Given us everlasting life. And so he said, whenever you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. Our Father, we owe you so much. What you have done for us, unworthy as each of us are, you have made us worthy, not because of our righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Christ that lives within us. Father, thank you so much for your Son. I can't even imagine what it must have been for you to go through watching your Son be tortured like he was and put upon the cross. And yet he died for a purpose, and that is for our sin. For that, Father, there's not enough ways that we can thank you. There's really nothing we really can do. It's just not enough. But Lord, what we did just right now is just remember what he has done for us and what he means to us. And we pray that that's a, an aroma that floats up into the heavens itself and is uh, is acceptable to you, Father. Thank you so much for your Son. It's in His name, the name of Jesus Christ, whom we love here more than life itself. It's in His name we give you thanks, Father. Amen. Let's close out uh, this series on marriage. It's kind of the, an interesting part. We, we went last week. If you, t- if you look at Genesis chapter 3, would you please? Genesis chapter 3, verse 16. The curse was felt, fell upon the woman first. And, and the Lord God said to the woman, God said, verse 16, I'm going to greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. In pain, you will bring forth children. Now, we studied that last week. And, and there's not a man here in this room that understands the, 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 the pain that a woman goes through giving birth to a child. I mean, it's heroic. I happened to be in the, in, the, in the very room where my wife gave birth to our two children, and I watched her go through that. And I 
I marveled at her strength. I marveled at, at who she is, and it made me fall more, more deeply in love with her. I will multiply your pain in childbirth. That's a curse that every woman will experience now until the Lord comes back. Yet, it says right after that, your desire shall be for your husband. And we learned last week that that desire doesn't mean sexually you will desire him even in the, in the midst of all the pain that you go through in childbirth. No, the word desire we learned between Cain and, and, and Abel was to try to control. That's what God said to, to Cain. He said, um, why is your countenance fallen when he says, I have no regard for the gift that you brought me, the fruit of the ground? I have no, I have the, I have no regard for that, he said. Why is your countenance fallen? And, and, and your countenance be lifted up, he says, if you only do well. In other words, if you do what I've asked you to do, your countenance will be lifted. And then God said to him, and gave him a warning, be careful, be careful, he said. Sin is crouching at your door, and its desire is for you. In other words, sin is wanting to control you, Cain. And so we understand that the word desire means your desire will be for your husband. And so what we learned, that a wife, God says, through the curse, will try innately to desire or to control your husband. Whereas... On the other hand, if you look back at Genesis 3.16, he ends up by saying, yet he will rule over you. And that, I believe, as we're going to explain in a moment, is part of the curse to us men. And so we have a role in marriage, and that is to rule over our wives. We'll find out what that means in a moment. But your husband has been called in your life to do that. And so if you try to... to uproot that and to control your husband it will only cause turmoil within a marriage there's way too many marriages that are like this they're just they're just arguing with one another and, and oftentimes you never know exactly why just arguing with one another when in fact it should be this loving one another encouraging one another lifting each other up and so we have this and if that happens, only two things, only two things can happen if you desire to control your husband. And both are bad. One's much worse than the other, though. First one, first things first, you try to control him, and if he's the man that I hope he is, he will dig in his heels and not allow you to take that place of authority that he has been given in the family. And he'll dig in his heels. But what happens when that happens? Then they'll be arguing. There'll be contention towards one another. Now that's bad enough. But the other option is much worse. Okay, if your husband loves you, ladies, as the Lord God asks us to love our wives, your husband will be more vulnerable to you than anyone else on the face of this earth. And so sometimes, lady, you're trying to control him, and because he's vulnerable, trying to love you, you'll, you'll do the very thing that you should be doing, and that's controlling him. And he becomes exactly what you're desiring. I've had many, many, many a woman come to me and talk to me about their marriage, having a problem with their marriage, and the problem is that he's not the man that I married. 
just not the man that I married. And I finally get to meet him as we counsel, and immediately I can see the problem. This guy is led all over by his wife. He's not even a man anymore. Might as well put a dress on him. What you've got now is not a husband, but a lady friend who happens to be a man. Ladies, please listen to this. This is as important as I can ever say anything to you. Since your husband will love you, hopefully, as God has commanded him to love you, and then he will be more vulnerable than ever before. And you'll think that you can control him. And if you are not careful, you just might. For the sake of your marriages, ladies, don't try to do that. When or if you recognize that you're doing just that stuff. And there are many different ways, I am told. I'm not a lady. I don't understand what you do to control us. But I've been taught that there are many different ways and styles of a wife controlling, desiring her husband. And if you're honest, you know exactly what I'm saying as a woman. Let me tell you a story that happened. I don't think I've ever told you this story before in church. It is absolutely, utterly true. Every, Every single word of it, at least my memory. I was doing counseling over at Yorba Linda Friends Church. I just started being the pastor there, and we were going through the series on marriage, much like we do here, did here. And, and, and I was doing marriages, in which I loved it to do, and this couple came in, and they wanted to talk to me about counseling before they got married. And, and ladies, if you saw this guy, he would have taken your breath away. This guy was tall, good-looking. I mean, I had a man crush on him the moment I saw him. <laughs> It's like Tom Brady, you know, I got, ooh. Anyways, this guy walks in, this guy walks in, and he's just gorgeous. But after him walks in what I would consider the, one of the most beautiful women I've ever laid eyes on. Little thing. She was about half her, his size, and she was breathtakingly beautiful. And I thought to myself, boy, this couple, they're going to make some wonderful-looking kids. And so we start talking about what we're going through. True story. She's there, he's there, they're listening. And I got to the part of trying to control him. Be careful, I told her. I said, don't try to control him. And she looked at him and batted her eyes and she said, Honey, I would never, ever do that to you. I believed her. I wanted to believe her. So I I went home. And I got to my wife and I said, You won't believe what happened today. I was counseling this couple, just beautiful looking people. And I said, uh, I told him about this thing, desiring, and she looked at him and she said, and I believed her. She said, I'll never try to control you. She says, oh, I want to meet them. I said, yeah, you should. I said, why? She says, because I want to meet this woman that's got both of you fooled. <laughs> that was her very words. She's, you, she's got you just as much fooled as him. And then she went on to tell me that every single woman knows exactly how to and when she is controlling a man. And honestly, I don't, I don't, I don't get it. I don't know when Kay is trying to do that to me, but she tells me she does. I simply say to you ladies, do not desire to control your husbands. Now, you might ask what I think is a legitimate question. What if What if he's not doing as you want him to do? Then how, how do you change him? And the answer was given to us when we started this study three or four or five weeks ago. No, by gosh, 
eight weeks ago. We've been now eight weeks in this study. Turn me back to 1 Peter chapter 3 where we began this whole series on marriage. Because it started this way and I thought, hmm, this needs to be explained, marriage. Because Peter says in chapter 3 verse 1 to the wives, he says in the same way, you wives, be submissive to your own husbands. And with that, when I was reading it, I thought, we've got to do a marriage seminar. We've got to talk about marriage. Because I know because I've studied this enough and I understand what the curse is, that when you tell a woman that she needs to be submissive to her own husband, that stings because it stings because it's part of the curse. Your desire is for your husband. You want to control him. You don't want to be submissive to him. Innately, that's a part of the curse. So he says in verse 1, even, here's what Peter says, I don't, if, even if he's the worst of the worst, and this is what God considers the worst of the worst, even if he is disobedient to the word, he may be won without a word by the behavior of his wife. As he observes your chaste and respectful behavior. And let not your adornment be merely external, braiding of hair, wearing gold jewelry, putting on dress. That, in other words, that's dressing up to the max. That was that, that was that little beautiful girl that was in that room that batted her eyes and said, I could never do that. And I, I said, I don't know about him, but I believe you. <laughs> but rather, verse 4, let it be that imperishable quality of, a gen, of, a, of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is precious. No, in the sight of who? Your husband? No, you're not trying to impress your husband with all of this. It's precious in the sight of God. What you want to do is leash your husband on him. You want God to change him. You don't want to change him. The reason you don't want to change him is you don't know what God's doing in his life. Only God does. So he says, in this way, verse 5, in former times... Holy women also who hoped in, not their husbands, they hoped in God, used to adorn themselves, being submissive to their own husbands. Thus Sarah obeyed Abraham, called him Lord. And you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. Let me tell you something. I understand, at least I think I do, what it would mean to, to trust God to move in the heart and the life of somebody it seems to be that fear, that fright. When's God going to do it? Is God going to do it? Does God hear me? Is it going to work? God says, look, do it without being frightened by any fear. I know what I'm doing, God's saying basically to you. I know what I'm doing. And so if you wonder how in the world are you going to change the situation you're in, do it with a great attitude. Do it with a quiet and gentle spirit, ladies. Let God change him. Not you. As I just said a moment ago, God knows what he's doing in both your life and his life. Now, let's go back to Genesis 3 and let's wrap this all up. Now he's speaking to the husband. He says then to the husband, he shall rule over you. That's the last part of verse 16. I believe strongly. You won't find it in the commentary, by the way. I, this is my thought on what Bible is teaching. Bible says he shall rule over you. I believe strongly that's part of our curse as a husband. Because, because, to truly understand our Lord's example of headship or leadership or to rule, we are therefore for the rest of our lives to become our wife's servant. I'm telling you, I would have been just fine 
If verse 16 end by saying, and you, wives, you shall rule over him. And then, therefore, you would, you would have to serve us the rest of your life. I know some of you I say, I do already. What, are you kidding me? I already have to serve that lug. Don't forget what Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 to 28 tells us clearly. Jesus says, leadership is this. Remember what happened? The sons of Zebedee, James and John, came to our Lord with their mother, which cracks me up. Boy, it just cracks me up. It'd be like my mom showing up when I was playing with the Dodgers and go to Walter Olson and says, can my son play third base? <laughs> mom, okay, can he? <laughs> so they, they, she asked that one be sit on your right, one on your left. In other words, both of my sons, can they have a place of authority? And he said to her quickly, it's not mine to give. But the other ten heard this, and they became indignant. They were indignant because they wanted to be the head too. And so Jesus took that time to explain to them and us what it means to be the head. And he ended by saying this, The Son of Man, whom we are to emulate, did not come to be served, but to what? But to serve. That's your call in life, gentlemen to serve your wives the rest of their lives. Now, if you have a a wife that wants to be in control, is, is fighting with all of her heart not to control you, you're to live with her, the Bible says, in an understanding way. In other words, you're to help her to flourish. And if you have a wife that has that drive to want to lead, give her the authority to lead in some of the places where she is shown gifts to be able to do so. And follow her. Show her the example of being submissive so that when you ask her to be submissive to you, she will understand what you're asking for. Our example, gentlemen, is always Jesus Christ. He says that we're to live with our wives in an understanding way, a farming term that is, to flourish, to make her flourish. And to honor her, it says, as a fellow heir of the grace of life. Since we've learned as a husband we are to love our wives like Jesus Christ loves us, we are to become her servant, guys. We're to understand her. Men, for the sake of God Almighty, lead her gently and look and see where there's places in her life that she must lead and allow her that authority to do so so that she will flourish as a woman. And in the process, serve her. Be her servant. Well, the rest of Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 and 19 is that we're going to, men, we're going to have to we're going to have to live the rest of our lives off the sweat of our brow. That's part of the curse. So to close it all down, a garden experience within a marriage is for the husband to love and to serve his wife. And when you wonder how, you are to love and to serve her like Jesus Christ does you. Huge task. But you can do it. Gentlemen, you can do it. For the wife... You're not to try to control your husband as he loves and serves you because he'll become more vulnerable to you than at any other time in his life. With that in mind, I've had so many husbands come to me after I've done this part and says, 
man, now you've done it. You don't realize what you've done in my marriage. You've opened up Pandora's box. My wife asks me to do this, asks me to do that, and, and the other all the time. Now, what, what is it going to be like? And I say the same thing to them as I would say to you right now. You should have thought about that before you said what? I do. The moment you say, I do, you've bought the farm. Now go home and take care of your wife. Don't complain to me. Go home and love her and serve her like the Bible's asked you to do. I'm not very easy on guys when they come to me. I'm a wimp when it comes to you ladies, but when it, just like that little girl that bet, I'll never do that. And I said, I don't think you would either. I don't care what the Bible says, honey. I don't think you'll do that. <laughs> I got home to my wife. And it, was such a, it was really funny. It made me laugh out loud. So here's the scenario, both to the husband and the wife and those of you who are not married, to us as believers in Jesus Christ. There is God's standard in all of this. It's, 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 it's a, a verses, two verses that I've given at every wedding I've ever done. It's Philippians 2, 3, and 4. It shows us how to live with each other, whether it's husband and wife or whether it's within the framework of the church. And it says this, I put it to memory, do nothing from selfishness nor empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as what? More important than you do your own self. You see, I have a leg up in this church if I can treat Brent and Melissa more importantly than I would me. And I do, I think, I try. I'd be better off in this church if I treated these two young ladies more importantly than I do my own self. And I do, I try. And we all have a role to play within the church. That's, that's given by God. Then it says, Do nothing from selfishness nor empty conceit, but with humility of mind. Let us regard one another as more important. Oh, that's, I'm, I blew that. See, I can't do it. I can't get it halfway in. I'm like a dancing bear. I've got to start from the beginning and go to the end. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility in mind, let us regard one another as more important than ourselves. Then it goes, do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but look out for, care for the interests of one another. You want to have a great church? Want to have a great marriage? Want to have a good relationship, a great relationship with anyone, your friends, family, and whatever? I can, tell something, I can tell you something that it would be kind of hard for you to believe, but my mother, my, when my mom was getting near the end of her life, she, she lived till she was 94, she used to beg with me. She begged me, begged me, begged me, begged me, take care of your sister. My sister's older than me. I, she, I don't ever tell that in front of her. She's my younger sister, I tell everybody. Um, mom always said, love her, take care of Joan. My sister's a very, um, very loving lady, but she, it was hard for her at times to tell me that she loved me because I was spoiled rotten. <laughs> I was a spoiled rotten kid. Um, and um, when my mother died, I started calling my sister. I call her all the time now, and she'll call me now, which she never did. And I told her every time, Sis, I love you so much. I don't know what I'd do without you. You're the greatest thing God ever brought into my life. 
I said that so often that now I really truly believe it. I didn't at first, but I do now. But now when she calls me, when she closes conversation, she says, I love you. I love you, Johnny. That's pretty awesome. I think that comes out of her because I've told her over and over again how much I love her. I've treated her with more respect than I do my own self. I believe my mom's smiling because I've asked, I've done as my mom has asked. You can repair relationships if you simply have love for one another and you think of other people as more highly than you do your own self. My best buddy, the guy I roomed with in college, now has us on his answer phone. This is Bill. Leave message. And don't forget, I love you more than life itself. He never used to say that. He told me he stole that from me. As we close this, hopefully now you and I can understand why Satan himself is so bent on destroying marriages. It's so that he would cloud the picture of Jesus Christ in the church. You see, if, if we're at each other's throats, husbands and wives, if we're just kind of having disagreements, and your friends and your neighbors see it, and then you say to them, hey, we're having something special at church. You want to come with us to church next week? They can say, no, why? I can do that on my own. But if they see this, if they see you loving one another, and you say, you want to come to church? We're having something going on. They may be more inclined maybe to come. See what's going on there. It has two people so in love with one another. As you display before them without them knowing it, the picture of Jesus Christ in his church. Same thing for all of you that are single. Your place to love is, to you marry, is you, you're wed to Jesus. And you're to love him and not be contentious with him but to love him. Satan wants to destroy that. He wants to cloud the picture of us loving the Lord our God and his word. In Ephesians, Paul says this mystery is great, speaking of marriages. He says, I'm speaking with reference to Jesus Christ and the church. Your marriage, those of you that are single, your relationship with God is a display of, of Christ and the church picture that you and I are to present to the world through our love and obedience is to love him so purely that others would love to know what it is that we have that they might want. That's a series on marriage. It's one of my fun things to do because I'd like to fight desperately for your marriage and mine. I'd like for it to be everything that God wants it to be. I've been told by those, I'm very fortunate. I really have a good marriage. I, if I'm bragging, I'm sorry. I, I just, I, I married a, I married a most, the most godly woman. I, she's the most godly person I've ever known, ever known. And that's to my advantage. And um, I absolutely love her with all my heart. I would uh, do anything for her. In time, you'll understand that. I'll explain it to you maybe more vividly. But nonetheless, love one another. That's why I tell you every week I love you. I do. 
I've had people come to me and say, you don't even know me. I, how can you say you love me? And I'll tell you why. Because you forced me into this, the Word of God. i got to come back next week and teach out of 1 Peter 3, verses 8 to 12. And I'm not sure I understand it all yet. I want to try and go home and study. And I want to go home and study because I've got to come here and stand before you and say, thus saith the Lord. If you don't think that's intimidating, you have no idea what it's like to be a pastor. It's really intimidating. It's not more special than the gift that you have. It's not. I'm not more special than anybody here in this church. I'm not. But the responsibility is overwhelming at times. Just as yours is to serve the Lord, I'm sure. Thanks, Father. Thank you for this family of God that we have here at this church. It's... uh, Gosh, what a joy. I love these people more than <laughs> life itself. I was going to say, Father, <laughs> I do love them so much. I just thank you so much for the privilege of being a part of this church and to watch it grow and to see what you're doing in the lives of each of us. Now, Father, there'll be people up front that will like for us to come up and pray with them if, if we need prayer for, say, a family member or a loved one or for our own selves. I pray that if you have anything or anyone that you uh, would like for us to pray for, that you'd come up. There'll be people up here that would love to pray with you. Now, Father, thank you. for Wherever you may take us, may, may this day be very, very special for each of us. I pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Have I ever told you? <laughs> thank you for being a part of this church. Thanks for being so faithful. I love you guys so much.